Father God, we pray that it is very apparent that you are inhabiting your people. That it's very apparent even this morning as we're present with you, present with one another, that your Holy Spirit is moving among us, that you are encouraging us, refining us, maybe even in areas rebuking us, teaching us, beckoning us to follow you. Lord, may we be a people of whom you are center. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is that church all about? <clears throat> what is that church all about? We're here at Oregon Hill Grace Chapel. Maybe sometimes people ask that question in the community. What's that church all about? They're not Lutheran. They're not Methodist. They're not Presbyterian. What are they? Over these next few months, we're going to take some time focusing on church values. And what are our church values here at Oregon Hill Grace Chapel? Remember that the word church in the scriptures never refers to a building, right? That, that's, that's our culture that's happened uh, throughout history that we start somehow associating church with the meeting place of a church. But church is the gathering of the people. The church, the church is the people of God, amen? So it, it's not a building. Buildings are just where the church gathers, where the church worships, maybe where the church ministers out of, in part. But the church, scripturally, is God's ecclesia. Uh, it's, it's God's called-out people. What does the word values mean? Values. What does the word values mean? Standard? Esteem highly? Good. I'm sorry? Worth? Did I get that right? Okay, good. <laughs> oh, man. I, I stepped on my glasses two weeks ago, so like I'm like squinting at all of you. And my, I'm here, like, can I hear? Can I see? <clears throat> yeah, so, so the... the the word values, when you look up a, a definition, it's accepted principles or standards of an individual or group. Accepted principles or standards of an individual group. But clearly we must also see that the word talks about what is valuable, right? So what is of great importance or worth. So we could ask, what are the guiding principles of greatest worth to us as a church? This is significant. And it's significant because what you value most, now listen to me, it's important. What you value most is going to drive your activity. What you value most is going to drive your behavior. It's going to drive your attitude. It's going to drive your practice. Now, you might argue, someone might say, well, you know, it really is beliefs 
that drive behavior. And I would say that that should be true and will be true as long as whatever beliefs you're talking about are what you value. Now, what do I mean? For example, I, I may say or you may say, I believe overeating is unhealthy. You might really believe that. But is that belief a value in your life? Is it a guiding principle of great importance to you? If not, it might be an, uh, an intellectual nod to an accepted truth, but at the same time, not actually affecting how you live your life. So it's a belief of mind, but not a belief of, maybe we could say, lifestyle. But if your belief translates into something you truly value, it guides what you do. It, that's just the natural response. In this case, you won't overeat. You'll eat moderately. You, you might likewise say, well, I believe that regular exercise is good for my health. But my activity, what I actually do, will prove if what I say I believe is what I value. If I say I believe that regular exercise is good for my health, but then I veg on the couch every opportunity I can, instead of exercising, <laughs> what do I value? Right? I'm I'm, I may value relaxation, and in its proper place, that's not all bad, but if I'm doing that every time I have a chance to exercise, but I say, I believe regular exercise is good for, of my health, for my health, I'm not showing that it's truly a value in my life. I value relaxation over exercise. So think for a moment, and I'm going to pause here. What does your activity speak of what you value? Think about your week. If I were to walk with you through your week, and, and again, the trick here is not talking about then you can play act, <laughs> right, and put on. Okay, someone's with me. So, But if I were just to walk with you through the normal activities of your week, both at work or at school, at leisure, with people, alone, talk about what, you know, just, just kind of walk with what you watch, what entertains you, just walk through your week, what you spend the most time, kind of, your energy on. What would I conclude that you value most? What would you conclude that I value most? And then, as I, as I collect, maybe, oh, okay, so I'm saying, I'm seeing this and this and this and this and this according to their activity, and maybe I can come up with a list of 10 things. Boy, it really seems like these are the things that are valued most. Does that align with what you say you believe? Of course, here we can ask ourselves, what form of belief God is actually looking for, right? 
Is belief that falls short of value really to believe as far as God is concerned? And then how does that apply to us corporately, togetherness, as a church? So over the weeks of this series, um, each topic we're going to reflect on will intersect what we say we believe and what we say we believe is most important. And I'm going to call them church values. And you can go on websites and, you know, what are, what are your church values? So we're going to call these things church values. But the reality is that they are only values if they are actually molding our activity. As individuals and a community. So as we walk through these things, if we start to say, oh my goodness, we're saying this is a value but it's not reflected in our activity. We need to be honest. And we need to change course, right? Our cornerstone, which we'll begin on, we'll focus on actually in two weeks, in two segments, is that as a church, we value being Christ-centered. Christ-centered. Who are they as a church? What are they about? Well, first and foremost, we should be Christ-centered. So when I use that, that's actually a fairly common terminology, right? Well, son, if you're looking for a church, like I'd tell my kids that. If you're looking for a church, you know, what are the first couple of things that I'll rattle off? Make sure it's Christ-centered. Make sure it's, it's, you know, under the authority of the scripture. You know, there's just a couple of things that are like top of the list. And, and for me, I would always say first, make sure it's Christ-centered. What, is it, what imagery comes to mind? What picture comes to mind? What's conjured up in your head with that expression, Christ-centered? Okay. Anything else? I mean, that's appropriate. Truth? Any pictures? Okay, God's word. Think as, a, think as a kid. What's that? Okay, so what image comes to your mind? Okay, a circle of what? Okay. This isn't right or wrong. I appreciate your answers. But, like, think as a kid would think. What do we, Christ-centered. I, I think about the solar system. All right? I, I think about the sun and its gravitational pull and, and how life-giving the sun is and how necessary the sun is to everything that orbits around it, right? Without the sun, we're not, <laughs> right? So we need the sun. It is life-giving to our planet, and, it is, and we're kept in its gravitational pull, and everything orbits around the sun. So, so for you folks that have, um, who are old enough, and you really don't have to be that old, to have survived your teen years, okay, so, many, so you may have heard from mom or dad on occasion saying... Oh, I forgot. The world revolves around you, right? Now, what is mom or dad expressing when they say that? What are they saying? What's going on in that scenario? I'm sorry? Okay, expecting all the intention. Okay, okay. 
That, that's, that's kind of what is being said, right? Yeah, it's, it's this idea that it's like, what's being conveyed, at least from the child, is that my opinions, my agenda, whatever's going on in my life, everything else should what? Orbit around that. That it's the most important thing. My wants, my needs. And while this is the very thing that we should be moving away from in and ourselves, it is the very thing we should be moving toward when it comes to Jesus and as followers of Jesus. What he, all that he is, all that he's done, all that he desires should become the center of the universe, we could say, of our lives and of our church. Not our talents, not our plans, not our egos, not our slick strategies, not our programs, not that, not that any of those things in their rightful place don't have a place, but they're not center. The center needs to be Jesus. Next week, we'll reflect on Jesus' lordship. This week, we're just going to take a few minutes and reflect on the theme that being Christ-centered means my life and the life of our church orbits around the fact that Jesus is Savior. Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to break in here for, in verse 13. It's a little unfair. I could read the whole chapter. I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter. And, and when it says in verse 13, for he, and you read the context, it's talking about God the Father. For he, God the Father, starting at verse 13, rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. So there's been a, there's been a movement of place, right? You've been, you've been transferred. You've been moved from one place into another. In whom we have redemption, that idea of being bought, bought back, redeemed, the forgiveness of sins. Could be, if you, you might have a side note, the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Starting at verse 15, he, the son now, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, speaking of the resurrection, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, or it could be as shown by your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish 
and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out that is in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. May God bless his word. In many of your Bibles, the section that starts at verse 15 is labeled what? Right, the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. And again, remember that word Christ is just the Greek for Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one that was prophesied to come to save God's people. The supremacy of Christ. We're given this breathtaking, right, this breathtaking eternal view of, of the Son. In him we see God who is otherwise invisible, at least to us, to, to physical people. We see God. We see all that God is represented in the Son. He is supreme over all that's created and is, in fact, the one by whom creation is formed. And not only is it formed, God didn't just wind it up and let it go, but he is, he, Jesus, think about this. I mean, this is like a blow your mind. In him, all things hold together. What is that? Like, where do you go with that? Like, he is the life glue that keeps everything together. Solar system, all the way down to the smallest little atoms, and he's it. How does, how does all this work out? What Paul is telling us, in him all things created, and in him all things hold together. And he's supreme over all of it. He is, has authority over all of it. He is the head, which could mean and probably means both the source and the authority over his body, the church, which again is not a building. It's a collection of people who have trusted in Jesus. Now, so much could be taught in that, right? We could do a whole series just on that. But notice what these profound truths are bracketed by. That this Jesus, this, this ultimate authority, God in flesh, creative agent over all that exists, that holds all things together, is the very one that God, God the Father used to rescue us from the dominion of darkness, bringing us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And later says, and to reconcile us to himself by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. One and the same person. The Jesus who died between two thieves on a Roman cross, tortured, spit on, mocked, seemed helpless to everyone who was watching. That Jesus is the same of whom... <laughs> who all things were created, all things are held together, has authority over everything, seen and unseen. What we see in this text, among many other things, is that we are in desperate need for a Savior. This concept of sin in Scripture, that, that there's a rebellion 
against what God says is good and right and just and fair has, has wrecked us. And it's caused extreme estrangement from God. And that hasn't kept God from pursuing us. But from heaven's point of view, we've become hostile to God. We've become, as Paul describes it here, enemies. That's a strong word in our minds. Enemies, as shown by our evil behavior. Isaiah 59, 2 says, Your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. And we've been cast out of God's beautiful kingdom of light and life. I mean, those are just pictures all through Scripture, Old Testament and New, that we get of God, that we get of Messiah. Light and life. Those are good things, right? Light and life. That's where I want to live. But we've been cast out of that into the dominion, the rule of darkness. That's a place of danger. It's a place of lostness. It's a place of blindness, of groping around, of moral corruption, and ultimately of death. All those things are pictured uh, as darkness in the scriptures. I need to be saved from that place. I need to be rescued. Around here we just say, I need rescued. Drop the two B's. I need rescue. And I can't rescue myself. I am under the dominion of darkness. And that's the first step, right, towards salvation. Saying, I can't rescue myself. If you don't think you need to be saved, you'll never be saved. But when you realize your life is ruled by the dominion of darkness of lostness, of blindness, of moral corruption, of death. I need to be rescued from that place. And the text, the beautiful thing is the text also tells us the gospel, that the good news of God is that God the Father has supplied a rescuer, that he has supplied a savior. And as Peter says in Acts 2, 12, speaking of Jesus, he says, salvation is found in who? No one else. Salvation's found who? In who? No one else. Right? Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Paul tells us that Jesus has sacrificed his physical body, having lived a perfect life, allowing his life blood to flow. Right? Life, the life is in the blood. He shed that lifeblood unto death, receiving the penalty of my sin and of your sin, of all your rebellion. And we now have the opportunity. It's really a neat, it's, a, it's an amazing thought. Can you stand up, Rich, for just a second? We have an opportunity, Paul says now. So I know my brother a little bit. He's a good guy, right? He's not a perfect guy. And we could, we could flip it around. He could be like, I know my brother a little bit. He's okay, you know. <laughs> but 
Paul says that Jesus will present this man. Right? He will present him holy, blameless, free from accusation. What are you being accused of? What's going on in your head? What guilt are you carrying? What shame are you carrying? Jesus will present this man one day because he trusts in Jesus Christ. He's been covered by the blood of Jesus, holy, blameless, free from accusation. Amen? That's beautiful. Amen. Only in Jesus do we find forgiveness of sins. There's no other name. That name representing all that Jesus is. It's only in Jesus that we find peace with God. It's only in Jesus that we enter into the living now kingdom of God. Yet Jesus is a savior only to those who receive him by faith. And this is faith that is a gift of God. It's faith that starts out and sometimes <laughs> continues to be just small. Lord, I just got a little bit. I just got a mustard seed. But it's a faith that, as Paul tells us in verse 23, that must be persevering. It must be so sincere, so genuine, that it'll keep going. That it'll be established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. But salvation doesn't come until I come to the Lord in repentance and faith, complete faith. That I exchange the trust from myself to Jesus. And I'll ask over and over, have you done that? Have you done that? Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Will be presented to the Father, holy, blameless, free from accusation. If you haven't, if you have any questions, please come see me. So Christ-centeredness begins and continues in the heart of the gospel. I need a Savior. God has supplied a Savior, and I need to receive that Savior, Jesus, by faith. So next, if Christ-centeredness is truly a value here at Oregon Hill Grace Chapel, and we'll carry on into our move to liberty, to Mountaintop Grace Community, how should it be affecting our activity, our attitudes, our practices? How should Christ-centeredness, specifically this week, thinking through the lens of Jesus, our Savior, affect how we function as a church? I think it should mean that we're living every day as a people who understands that we need a Savior, Right? And a people who have been supplied a Savior. Amen? And those things have to be combined in our attitude and action. They should be what radiates from our lives. So typically, the biggest knock on the church, those people are a bunch of hypocrites. We all know it. Those people are a bunch of hypocrites, which literally means actor, right? A actor. They're fakers. But if Christ-centeredness means that our lives, individually and together, orbit around our shared need for a Savior, the opposite should be true. 
the opposite should be true. We should be the most humble and honest people that people experience. We shouldn't be people that are reflecting pious pretense and smug self-righteousness. But rather, we should be moving in meekness and vulnerability and authenticity. We shouldn't be a people that are, is, is constantly boasting about our self-sufficiency. Well, I, I can do it, and I can protect what I've got, and I've got, you know, like it's all about me, 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 and I got it covered, man. It's about me, and I'm strong, I'm able. God will sober you up pretty quick with that attitude, won't he? Instead, we should be a people that are admitting our weakness, sharing our struggles. It's one thing I love. Just it's, it's just a glimpse, right? Just part of it, what we do during our sharing time. People getting up and just, this is where I'm hurting. This is what's going on. And praise God, God did this because I couldn't do it myself. And that's part of a practice that displays humility and authenticity and vulnerability. We shouldn't be those who are quick to criticize, quick to judge those who are around us when we realize that we are desperately in need ourselves. But instead, understand that in and of ourselves, we're poor in spirit. These are indications of Christ-centeredness. And it should be obvious to those who know us personally, and it should be obvious to anyone who comes in among us whether it be a Sunday morning, whether it be a concert, whether it be a mom's in prayer, whether it be a youth group. Wow. This is the opposite of hypocrisy. These people are in need. They're willing to admit it. They recognize it. But it must go beyond just kind of this, this idea of humble authenticity. We're not only a people that admits our neediness, but we're a people who have had our deepest needs supplied in Christ. Amen? Amen? Are we living that way? Are we living like we've had our deepest needs supplied in Jesus? And not just once, but ongoing? Let me, this isn't going to be exhausted by any means. Let me just give you a few things that this should mean. This should mean we're a grateful people. We are consistently grateful. Not, <laughs> there's sad times. I get it. There's hard times. I get it. There's times that th things tie you up and you're struggling with, don't be anxious and don't worry about your lives. And I get it. But we should be grateful. people who regularly respond to God with thanksgiving, who regularly respond to God with worship. And when they come among us, listen, when people come among us, they shouldn't just hear us singing songs. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. They should come among a people that are grateful and adoring God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen? We're coming to worship him with hearts of thanksgiving. It should mean that we're a contented people and not apathetic, but, but a people that have dropped out of the feudal race of finding satisfaction in stuff, in materialism, in, in lustful pleasures, in popularity, in power. And 
find our deepest satisfaction in Christ. It means that we should be a dependent and hopeful people. When we truly know that God has supplied our deepest needs and he is the source of all good things, we're dependent on him and we're hopeful toward him. We're people who ask and a people who trust in the answers. There are people that when people come among us, they say, oh, they're a prayerful people. They're an expectant people. They're trusting people. And finally, if I were to spend a week with you in everything you do and all your activities at work and at leisure, I would see what's most important to you in what you do and in what you say. It'll reflect in your attitude and your action and your speech. You're going to naturally, eventually, if I spend enough time with you, just tell me what's important to you. What's going on? What's what you value most? And, and it, you know, I mean, like you, some of you guys love hunting. Come hunting season, you can't help. I can't help telling some hunting stories, right? Just natural. Why should it be any different with Jesus? <laughs> we should be a people who sharing the good news is just natural and regular. And not sharing, again, just about some stoic moment happened in the past. Well, I accepted Jesus here. That was just a, a locked moment in time and is somehow going to affect something in the future. I'm not really sure what happens in between, but that God is saving me from myself every day. He is the supply of every good thing and every need. You know, when we're living like that, and that's our value, and we are truly Christ-centered as individuals and as a people, we're going to talk about it. It's going to be evident to people. We'll be evangelistic in the truest sense. So is Christ-centeredness truly a value here at our church? As a church, are we regularly reflecting that we need a Savior, humble, honest, Meek, vulnerable, authentic. And that Jesus is God's all-sufficient supply. Every day. That we're satisfied, yet appropriately dependent, hopeful, prayerful, expectant, trusting. As a pastor, it's one of my fundamental goals that we would reflect that we need a Savior. And we reflect that God has supplied a Savior. Amen? It can't just be my goal. And I'm not saying I do that perfectly. I'm not putting myself on a pedestal. But it can't just be my goal. It has to be our goal. Right? It has to be. It has to be. Every single one of us that are hearing God's word this morning. It has to be our goal together. God is calling out a people. You are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. 
as we worship together, as we learn together, as we reach out together. It's because we're a church community not, that's not just trying to build its own kingdom, not just build its own well-functioning organization, but a people who wants to see as many who will come rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Amen? May it be so. And now we appropriately will share communion together. I ask if you, if you know Jesus as Savior to be welcome and come and participate in this. If you don't, I don't say this out of any judgment, um, but I say it because the Bible seems to have some warnings. Let it pass. It's really supposed to be just a, a time together that those who have professed Jesus as Lord and Savior participate in. But if you'd even wonder, why would that be? And again, come to me, ask those questions. Today can be the day of salvation, right? But we break this bread because it represents Jesus' physical body broken for us. We drink this little juice, this little cup of juice, because it represents, again, think about it, it represents blood. It represents that blood was spilled, perfect life-giving blood of Jesus on our behalf. We do this because we're Christ-centered, amen? We're Christ-centered, and we need to be reminded over and over and over again that we're in need and that God has supplied the need. To remember where we were, who we were, where we are now, who we are now in Christ, and what it took for that to happen. That we were enslaved by sin and death, prisoners in the dominion of darkness, alienated, enemies. Think about those words. That's where we were. But God, but Jesus sacrificed himself so that those who come to him and trust in his blood covered for their sin could be presented to the Father holy, blameless, free from accusation. Wow. Forgiven, reconciled, citizens of the kingdom. I ask you to ponder those things and give thanks while we pass the elements, and then we'll, after everyone receives them, we'll take them together.
us supply that need in Jesus. If action speaks to what is valued most, what does Jesus' action tell you? What does it tell you about how much God has valued you? The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. Jesus be our center.